Welcome to the Scientific American Podcast for mid-February. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, we'll talk with Scientific American editor Christine Suarez about avian flu. Paleontologist Gregory Erickson tells us about the discovery of a fossil from T-Rex's great-great-great-great-great, well, you got the idea, granddad. And Bruce Merkin discusses marijuana policy in the U.S. and in England. Along with those interviews, we'll test your veracity or mendacity perspicacity with a quiz about real and fake science. And with John Stewart, perhaps our most trusted news anchor, we'll look at how yesterday's comics might have handled today's news. Thanks for joining us on the Scientific American Podcast. First up, avian flu. Wade Gibbs and Christine Suarez co-wrote a November Scientific American article on avian flu. Now that we're deep into this flu season, I spoke with Christine at her office at Scientific American Magazine. We've been hearing about avian flu in humans in the country Turkey. So what's going on there? Uh, yes, there has been a recent outbreak. Very worrying because, uh, of course, every time the virus infects people, it gets another opportunity to adapt to people. The big concern there is that the uh, the adaptation could come where avian flu acquires the ability to be transmitted directly from one human to another? Exactly, yes. It might meet a human flu virus and uh, swap genes and gain the ability to transmit between people, or it might just evolve it on its own. There's always a concern around flu season, but this year, hyper-concern. Why was the concern so great? Well, of course, there uh, has been building concern among scientists for the last few years about this particular virus potentially turning into the next pandemic virus. This fall, I think, the U.S. released its pandemic plan with a lot of fanfare right around the same time that the virus was identified in birds in Europe, and so uh, you got a kind of confluence of a lot of general media coverage that might have been a little panicky. Let's talk about the media coverage for a moment. Was the media coverage overblown? Was was there too much? Well, uh, in the sense that it's an extremely serious threat, um, there's probably no such thing as too much coverage. Uh, scientists have been trying to get attention for the issue for years. The general media was probably new to the subject and maybe didn't understand a lot of the details and nuances and the basis of concern and what to be concerned about and um, may have been a little bit hysterical. So how long are we going to be watching avian flu? Uh, well, the people who've been watching it already will continue to watch it very closely, not just this strain, but uh, all avian flu strains. I think they worry that the public attention will wane after so much frenzy last fall and perhaps support for further research and preparations will also wane along with that, which would be the worst thing that could happen. Is there a big flu pandemic coming at us inevitably? Well, I guess if you look past to history, you know, <laughs> look back thousands of years, there are records of uh, flu pandemics, so statistically it's a good bet. When is the question? Whether it can be delayed or averted or prevented, unknown. Christine, thanks very much. Thank you, Steve. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Three of them are actually true. See if you can guess which one is totally bogus. Number one, researchers recently published an analysis of coma patients on soap operas. Number two, a British man went bankrupt redesigning his apartment to look like the interior of the starship Voyager from the TV show Star Trek Voyager. Then his wife left him. Three, 
the American Association of Petroleum Geologists gave their Journalism Award to Michael Crichton for his novels, Jurassic Park, and the more recent State of Fear, in which he poo-poos global warming. And four, on the weekend after the new Harry Potter book came out, only half as many kids wound up in English emergency rooms as on a typical weekend. I'll be back with a totally bogus answer. But first, in January, the British government released a report from its advisory council on the misuse of drugs, with recommendations on how marijuana should be legally classified. I talked about the report and differences in how cannabis is handled by the governments of England and the U.S. with Bruce Merkin. He's with an organization called the Marijuana Policy Project, and I called him at his office in San Francisco. Mr. Merkin, good to talk to you today. Good to be here. Tell me about the the British report and what brought it about and and what conclusions they came to. Sure. Well, this this goes back a few years. Uh, the British government has been in a process of reconsidering their their policy towards marijuana or cannabis, as it's as it's known back there, and more scientifically. Uh, and two years ago, they reclassified what they called downgraded marijuana uh, in their uh, national drug law, they moved it down to the lowest category, what's considered the least dangerous of illicit drugs. Uh, and in practical terms, what that meant is that by and large, you don't get arrested in Britain for possession of marijuana unless there's aggravating circumstances. Uh, they implemented that policy in the beginning of 2004. Uh, and then um, the government began to have some second thoughts, in part because a couple of studies came out in the last year or so suggesting a possible link between marijuana use and mental illness. So basically, the British government, the Home Office, uh, turned to their scientific advisory panel, a group called the uh, Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs, which is a group of very high-powered scientists from Oxford and Cambridge and other uh, high-powered institutions, and they basically said, look at the data again, make sure we did the right thing, or do we need to change this? Uh, the conclusions that the council reached, uh, the advisory council, after reviewing the data? Well, the uh, council reviewed the data. They, they released a report in mid-January of this year uh, and concluded that the policy should be maintained. That is, they should not go back to arresting marijuana users. Uh, they looked at the data and concluded that, that there are some risks. This is definitely not a report that, that whitewashes the health risks of marijuana, and they're, they're particularly strong about saying that young people should be discouraged from using it. Let me go over some of the material from the report for people who are not familiar with the drug classification scheme. In England, according to the report, uh, a drug like cocaine is in class A, the most dangerous class. Drugs like amphetamines or barbiturates are considered class B, and marijuana had been moved recently from class B down to class C, where it was considered the least harmful of the regulated drugs, right? Correct. And it's, that's an interesting contrast, of course, to the U.S. Uh, national drug law, what's called the Controlled Substances Act, uh, in which marijuana is in the worst category, what's called Schedule One. Uh, with heroin and LSD. Why is there such a difference between the American attitude and the British attitude toward cannabis? Well, 
I have to say I think it's because the British have chosen to take a, a science-based approach. They've really looked at the data, acknowledged that the substance is not harmless, but the harm that it causes is relatively limited. Uh, while the U.S. has, has really just, I've got to say, clung to mythology. Um, this is a drug that carries a lot of social and cultural baggage with it. Uh, and it's been stigmatized in a way that that really almost seems to make U.S. policy impervious to data. Now, the report recommends that rather than classify marijuana back up to a more serious drug, that the government engage in a public information campaign to try to discourage its use while still maintaining it in the lowest of the categories in terms of harm. Now, how does that contrast with the American situation? Uh, in a newspaper ad directed at parents that ran all over the country last year, USA Today, New York Times, all the major papers, uh, big headline says, Marijuana and your teen's mental health, depression, suicidal thoughts, schizophrenia. Scary stuff, intended to be scary stuff. Uh, but the British experts looked at the data, and uh, came away convinced, and I'll just read this, the recent data are not overall persuasive of a causal association between cannabis use and the development of depression, bipolar disorder, or anxiety. So what, what the White House has really done here is cherry-picked little snippets of data out of context to, to support a political position. And... That doesn't help us. You know, people can disagree about what the right policy should be, but let's have some respect for science. Thanks very much, Mr. Merkin. We appreciate it. Thank you. It was a pleasure. The Marijuana Policy Project's website is mpp.org, and the website of the Office of National Drug Control Policy's Youth Anti-Drug Media Campaign is mediacampaign.org. <laughs> And now it's time to see which story was totally bogus. Again, the stories were, did scientists really do an outcome study of coma patients on soap operas? Did a man go broke making his apartment look like the starship Voyager? Did the American Association of Petroleum Geologists really give Michael Crichton their journalism award? And do Harry Potter books cut down on emergency room visits? Soap opera comas really were studied. Researchers in Philadelphia looked at 64 coma patients on soap operas over a 10-year period. 89% of the patients made a full recovery, which shows once again that it's better to have a coma on TV than in real life. Petroleum geologists really did give Crichton their journalism award, which is weird because never mind that his take on global warming science is suspect. How about the fact that most of the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park actually lived in the more recent Cretaceous period? Although you have to admit that Jurassic Park is a better title than Cretaceous Park. There's more on this story at the Scientific American blog, blog.siam.com. And Harry Potter does cut down on trauma. Reading Harry Potter probably keeps kids indoors in soft chairs instead of outside playing on hard concrete, getting hurt, and going to emergency rooms. Although the long-term impact of a sedentary lifestyle may offset these short-term health gains. Which means that the story about the guy going bankrupt from turning his home into the starship Voyager after which his wife left him is totally bogus. Because, you see... 
According to published accounts, his wife left him before he redesigned the apartment to look like the Starship Voyager. If he was trying to get her back, maybe he should have gone with the Enterprise instead? And maybe we should have gone with Partially Bogus! Although you have to admit that Totally Bogus is a better title than Partially Bogus. Hey, if you've got any comments about the Scientific American podcast that you'd like to share, send us email at podcast at siam.com. That's podcast at siam.com. Next up, paleontologist Gregory Erickson. He wrote a big T-Rex update article for Scientific American back in September 1999, and he's a co-author of a paper in last week's edition of the journal Nature about the discovery of a new, very old, T-Rex relative. I called him at his office at Florida State University in Tallahassee. Professor Erickson, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me, Steve. So... Tell us about this fossil. First of all, who found it, where they find it, and, and you're one of the co-authors on the Nature, the journal Nature paper. What was your role in this whole thing? Well, that's correct. This, uh, this was found uh, by Xu Xing, who's at uh, the Institute of Vertebrate Paleontology and Paleoanthropology in Beijing, China, and he was working with uh, Jim Clark from George Washington University, and uh, they had a crew out in the field uh, a year or so ago, and uh, one of their... Uh, colleagues, uh, his name's Yu, uh, was the one who actually came across the specimen. And you're one of the co-authors on the paper, so what was your role? Well, uh, Shu came to me with a specimen, uh, actually two specimens, and uh, he knew they were they, they were the same species, uh, but one was much smaller than the other, and uh, also there, there were some differences in the, in the shapes of uh, um, the skull and uh, things such as the orbit, the place where the eye is on the skull. Some of these things uh, kind of puzzled him, and he was wondering whether we had two adults here or if we were looking at developmental differences. So my role was uh, being an expert on dinosaur growth patterns was to uh, cut up some of the bones from these animals to figure out how old they were. And what we found is that the larger specimen, uh, the one with the most elaborate crest, was uh, about 13 years of age uh, at the time of death, and the smaller one was six years of age. This this tells us that we're probably dealing with the developmental differences between these animals and not uh, sexual differences. Can you very briefly explain how you can look at the bones and tell how old this dinosaur was when it died? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, aging reptiles is, is very much like uh, aging a tree. Uh, you, if you uh, count all the growth rings in a tree from the center moving to the outside uh, uh, you know, of, a, of a tree, you can figure out how old it is counting the annual growth lines. In reptiles, you see the same growth lines. And so we basically select certain bones, particularly the, the fibula, which is a shin bone, uh, on meat-eating dinosaurs like this. And we'll, we'll cut them open and we'll make a microscopic or microscope slide of them. And you can just count the growth lines from the center to the outside and figure out how old they are. So in the introduction to the entire podcast, I called this dinosaur a great, great, great ad infinitum grandfather of, of T-Rex. Now, is that accurate or is, or is it more like a... 50th cousin a million times removed or what is it probably the latter this is a this is a tyrannosaur that uh, is not a direct ancestor to t-rex but it's a close relative it's on a a, you know another dead-end lineage uh, so to speak but it shares a common ancestor with tyrannosaurus rex and the big deal about this is that it's so much older than t-rex yeah, this is the oldest Tyrannosauroid, so it's uh, it's about 90 million years older than Tyrannosaurus rex, and it clearly has uh, Tyrannosaur-type features, uh, 
but uh, it, it's definitely not uh, you know a, a T-Rex. It's not a it's not a, a gigantic animal. It's, it doesn't have just two fingers. It uh, it clearly is a lot more like uh, some of the smaller meat-eating dinosaurs from earlier times. Okay, it's not gigantic, but it's not tiny either. No, it's about uh, ten feet long, which is. Uh, you know, of moderate size when we're talking about uh, dinosaurs. Uh, Tyrannosaurus rex, for comparison, was about 42 to 43 feet long and uh, weighed about 12,000 pounds. So right. this is a considerably smaller animal. But you still wouldn't want to come across it. I wouldn't want to come across either of them, actually. Right. <laughs> now, earlier in the podcast, I made reference to Jurassic Park and the fact that a lot of the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park were actually from the Cretaceous. But this baby is from the Jurassic, right? Yes, you're right. This this is an animal that actually comes from the Jurassic period. There was a piece about this research on your university's website, the Florida State University website, where you were quoted as calling it the sexiest of the tyrannosaurs. How does it rate that description? <laughs> yeah, I guess I did say that. It uh, well, it, it has this uh, enormous crest on its uh, on its skull. It's uh, you know very much like the crests we see on the spitter from Jurassic Park and. Uh, no, no, uh, excrescence like this has ever been seen on a tyrannosauroid. And, and so, uh, and, and we think that these are structures that were, were probably for species recognition and probably for sexual display. So, uh, in that sense, this is a, a, a sex related, uh, uh, crest, I guess. And there, and being the relatively largest crest on any tyrannosaur, I guess that makes it the sexiest tyrannosaur. This, the dinosaur has been dubbed Guanlong Wakai, is that right? Wukai, yeah. Wukai. And that has a pretty cool translation when you turn it into English. Yeah, it means, uh, the, the crown dragon of five colors. And, uh, the, the five colors comes from the uh, very colorful rocks that the specimen was found in. And in some of the shops there, I guess they call them apothecary shops, they, they powder up dinosaur bones. And they do this to this very day, and they sell them as medicine. And, uh, and they're sold as dragon bones. And so, uh, you know, in a sense, these really are the dragons that, uh, <laughs> that, uh, those, those tales uh, come from. So that's quite an expiration date on that bottle of medicine. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Professor Erickson, thank you. We appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much. Finally, you know, many Americans get most of their news from comics like Jon Stewart. We wondered how some of yesterday's best-loved comedians might have handled today's news. Hey, bud, I've been hearing a lot lately about this bird flu. It sounds awful scary. Well, you know, Lou, that's very understandable. Stopping it will require an international response by the World Health Organization... Who? Who is trying to stop it? That's right. What's right? Who is trying to stop it? That's what I asked. And I told you the answer is who. Who what? Is stopping the spread of the avian flu. That's what I want to know. And that's why I keep telling you who is responsible for bird flu. Wait, so who brought the flu to Europe? No, who tried to stop the flu from getting to Europe. Well, that's what I want to know. And that's what I'm telling you. Telling me what? Who didn't stop the flu from getting to Europe. Right, so how did it get there? The flu in the birds. I know it's flu in the birds. I want to know how it got there. You should ask who. Ask who what? I don't even know what we're talking about. <laughs> Tell me this. 
Are there sick turkeys? I don't know. So the flu might not be in Turkey. No, it's definitely in Turkey. But you said you didn't know. But I do know. Who told me? I can't guess. Guess what? You tell me. Tell you what? Tell me who. Who what? Where? Turkey. <laughs> how? I don't know. It flew. Exactly. And how did it get there? Who knows? Now you got it. I don't got nothing. Duck. Oh. I told you to duck. Well, I can see by the vibration of the cesium atoms on the wall that that's it for this edition of the Scientific American Podcast. You can write to us at podcast at siam.com. I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.